This is a submedia production. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of our brand new Circle A podcast, the show where we take a deeper dive into some of Submedia's best interviews. My name's JR and I'm very excited to get to share this new project with you. If you're not familiar with our visual content, you can find it all for free at www.sub.media, but please stick around in the meantime as our podcast will definitely stand on its own. When Submedia makes our videos, we put together all these amazing interviews, which inevitably get edited down into short clips. We do this to keep our videos fast-paced, but it is always a hard process since so much great content gets cut. With Circle A Podcast, we're going to put an end to this and offer up full interviews for people to enjoy. These will be the feature interviews from our current show, System Fail, and also some of our favorites from the Trouble Archives. For this episode, we sat down with Skyler Williams, an Indigenous land defender who was part of starting the 1492 Land Back Lane Occupation Camp, just outside of the Six Nations Reserve in Southern Ontario. He walked us through the opening days of the initial occupation and eventual reoccupation following police repression. I then went on to answer some of our questions about the historical context at Six Nations and some of the politics on the ground. At the end, we'll give an update on how the struggle has been unfolding in the days since this interview was recorded. I'm Skyler Williams. Um, I got kind of designated as the spokesperson at 1492 Landback Lane. We um, went in there on July 19th. We, myself and some friends and family, kind of knew about this development that was about to start. And then uh, at the very beginning of us wanting to, to go in there to, uh, to occupy, to reclaim our lands, it uh, uh, was right at the start of uh, all the COVID stuff. And so the, uh, there was uh, barricades that went up around the reserve and there was uh, lots of concern about whether or not uh, us as a community could um, withstand uh, the outbreak that was coming. And so people were really worried about that. And so after a couple of months of letting that kind of settle and get to where it is now, um, we had uh, decided that uh, uh, it was time. Um, we had seen that they had started the, they hadn't stopped any of the development that was going on there. And so um, by the time we were able to get there, they had been developing for three months. And so they, they had put in some roads and uh, like like uh, no asphalt or concrete or anything, just the uh, uh, kind of what goes under the road, like the stone and all that kind of stuff. And they cleared the land of every blade of grass, every tree, every shrub, every hill. It was just, and so now it's just uh, some barren clay there. And uh, so we moved in there on July 19th. Um, it was a Sunday evening. We were very deliberate about going there Sunday evening um, because, you know, we wanted to remain it as a peaceful occupation of our land. And so going in there kind of during the day, during the week, meant that um, we were going to have lots of, you know, workers there and there was going to be confrontation and that kind of thing. And so we went in on a Sunday, Sunday evening 
to uh, uh, to try and mitigate any of that risk of having have uh, you know a big standoff with the developers and the the workers of those developers. And so we went in Sunday evening, about supper time. We went and uh, we were there for about an hour. We set a fire and uh, erected a couple of flags. And after about an hour, the police pulled in and uh, they, they asked how long we were gonna be there. And uh, we said that day that the, um, that you know our people have been here for the last 10,000 years and our people are gonna be here for the next 10,000. And so we kind of all laughed, and and uh, the co uh, police officer at, like said, you know, uh, so I take it you're going to be here for a while then, and they left. And so two weeks of absolute, you know, just holding space began. And so, you know, we ate, and we talked, and we laughed, and uh, we played lacrosse, and we uh, uh, tried to just, you know, uh, holding space is probably the hardest bit of whenever this stuff is going on like that holding space is a is by far the hardest part and being able to maintain that for for a long long period of time is is, is difficult and uh, uh, community sport started to happen you know we started getting hot meals delivered every day and you know people have started coming out to to, to stay with us to to, to help hold that space and so we started you know everybody kind of chipping in and helping out and more and more tents started getting erected and then um, on the August 5th there was a injunction that was was granted to the, the developer without without notice it's called and yeah and so the police moved in at about 10 o'clock in the morning uh, they said they had to come and read the injunction and when they did, they blocked off both both uh, both accesses to the uh, to the camp uh, to prevent anybody from coming in. They uh, came, they read the injunction, and then this massive line of vans. It was like 15 passenger vans just started rolling down the highway uh, toward us, and uh, the police barricade line moved back, and all of the cops rolled in. And it was about 100 OPP tactical unit folks got out of those cars with big guns, and they uh, they came out and uh, said that uh, uh, that they're going to start making arrests. And so the group of us there, we backed up onto the site and uh, asked for anybody that didn't want to didn't wasn't planning on staying through any of that, uh, they were told that they have the option to leave if they want. And myself and a few others said, you know, no, we're not going anywhere. And uh, and we stayed. Uh, in the process of those arrests that were being made, nine of them that day, uh, there was one, one young man that was tasered in the neck and head. Uh, one young woman that was a, a non-native non -native woman that was just happened to be standing there videotaping got in the way of the line of cops that was coming and uh, she was picked up by a really really large uh, OPP officer and slammed into the mud um, and then uh, rubber we we all got rubber bullets fired at us myself and uh, brother of mine was standing beside me the uh, rubber bullet hit the well and we didn't know they were rubber bullets at the time it was just a 12 gauge shotgun pointing at you and 
uh, and them guys shooting. And so the one one hit the car right beside me, and and so it was it was a hectic day, and uh, I was arrested that day, and uh, released. Uh, I think I was released about five hours later, and when I got out. Um, uh, this woman came up to me and asked me if I knew what was going on, knew what was going on on the on the land and on the roads down there. And I said no. And uh, she showed me some video of uh, stuff that was going online right now. And at that moment, and there was highway blockades and rail blockades and uh, roads roads were blocked and and uh, I uh, um, I got back down to. Uh, to Caledonia, just off the reserve, and uh, folks asked myself and some of the other other people that were, you know, at Landback at 1492 Landback Lane, and they asked us what we wanted to do. And uh, I think we all almost at the same time as they, uh, we said we wanted Landback, we wanted our, we wanted to go back to our camp, and so just like we did on day one, there's about a dozen cars and what, 30 people jumped in those cars and. Drove right back in the front door. So, and then that's kind of been the state of affairs since since then. And uh, so, at over the next few weeks, uh, the barricades came down. And I think that was something that we had we had said right from the start was like you know like this wasn't a, a, a violent occupation. This was not a violent action. This was about us you know peacefully occupying our lands. And uh, it wasn't us that brought the violence to. Uh, to this situation, like those blockades that went up, were like was was that reaction to you know an ongoing criminalization of land defense, you know, like the uh, Canada and Ontario, and to a lesser degree, I guess uh, Haldeman County, uh, saying that like the uh, you know settling land claims through uh, court action through arrests, through putting these heavy, weighty bail conditions and release conditions on people that they can't defend the land. And so this is like, I think this is where the problem lies for us is that like, it doesn't matter for us what what uh, they can do or say or um, it, 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 the, our obligation to the land is, is far greater than the, anything that they could do to us. And so to take the, that kind of inherent right away from my grandchildren, great-grandchildren, like, that, you know, this is their land. And, like, and, you know, who, who would I be to, to deny them that by me not making the stand that I'm making today? The Canadian government only ever honours treaties when it's convenient. This is as true today as it has been throughout history. The Six Nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, called the Iroquois by the settlers, allied with the British during the American Revolution, and in exchange were awarded the Haldeman Tract. This nearly one million acre parcel of land runs six miles on either side of the Grand River in southern Ontario, from its source all the way to Lake Erie. Since being awarded in 1784, over 95% was subsequently stolen via made-up claims of land lease agreements. The few of these claims that were actually paid were put into a trust account, which was in turn stolen to pay for settler infrastructure, including the Welland Canal and McGill University. The Haldeman Tract is, uh, 
is six miles on each, each side of the Grand River uh, from the mouth to the source. So the, uh, the source being up uh, just west of Toronto. And so it's, it's miles and miles long, um, hundreds of thousands of acres of land from there all the way to almost Fort Erie. Uh, Buffalo area in the in the in the south, and so it's it's a long long it's a long tract of land and some of like the in terms of uh, southern Ontario being like the most lucrative real estate area in in all of the country, you know and like and so that to have have that be uh, kind of squandered away by them giving us you know peanuts for like the actual cost of what what this land is worth is uh is horrible for us and to, for those developers to come there and say like either you know you take the money and we can develop the land or you cannot take the money and we're going to develop the land anyway and so like this is this is this is the problem with what you know people are calling consultation and accommodation you know like that like in the court saying that uh that that's good enough, that, that they don't require consent from any community to develop our lands. And so when our community says no to something, this is what that looks like. When there's a failure of the, uh, of the process of land claims, like our community has had a land claim uh, going through their process for the last 35 years. You know, like I don't need Ontario or Canada even to, to give me the deed to the land there, because we have it. We know we have it. We have and and can prove this. It's uh, uh, it's uncontestable, in, 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 as far as I'm concerned, that the land was bought off of uh, off a squatter. Uh, you know, almost 200 years ago, and so uh, so that that land and that uh, understanding that that that's our that, that that it's ours is something that like regardless of what family or or, or group in, the, in our community, like that, that land, whether you're a band council follower or, or you follow the Confederacy or hereditary chiefs, like everybody agrees that the land is ours and nobody has say over our lands but us. And so when we say that, like when we say no to development, um, there are people like myself and the folks that came, came to, uh, to land back with us that like, like it, it doesn't matter what they, they, they say, any of the conditions or the court orders, like uh, we have our own law to follow. Uh, we follow the great law of peace and that's, our, that's what we have to stand behind. And, uh, and so the more that we're able to continue uh, upholding our, our, our core beliefs and our core values and principles, like those are, those are things for us that, aren't, that, that can't be changed by uh, a court or a judge or police or anybody. This is far from the first time the Six Nations land defenders have had to put their freedom and safety on the line. In 2006, the community came together and successfully fought off another illegitimate attempt at so-called development. The outcome of that struggle plays a substantial role in framing how the conflict today is unfolding. So 2006, um, there was a group of women from our community went to uh, uh, Douglas Creek Estates, which is directly across the road from where we are now. And um, they uh, went there and they, at first, were handing out pamphlets. And 
uh, giving information about what the Haldeman tract is. And um, at some point, the uh, developer got upset with this and uh, told them to leave. And instead of leaving, they, they stopped the development. They stopped uh, dump trucks from rolling in. They stopped uh, uh, excavators from digging. They, and uh, there was some confrontation, I guess, with, the, with those women that were there that day. And uh, that got a bunch of us. Uh, uh, I was, I think I was in my early 20s, and uh, got a bunch of us to go and help and do whatever we could to, to maintain that, uh, maintain the camp there at that time, and the same as what we're, we're doing today, and holding space and, uh, you know, preparing for what lengthy legal battles are await us. And so that, uh, at that time, there was um, uh, three of them, uh, Hazel, Hazel Hill and Janie and Don Smith, and they all um, like held it down and like made sure that everybody was taken care of and made sure that like they were, uh, they were amazing, amazing women. And uh, they are amazing women, sorry. And uh, they, um, yeah, and April 20th, April 20th that year, they, um, they, the OPP uh, raided the site that day with 220 of the same tactical officers that we seen on the 5th of August this year. Um, and they had snipers in the trees and they had massive tear gas canister guns pointed at us. And, um, and yeah, and it was, it was a, a messy, messy situation. And one where it saw me go to go to jail for uh, seven months um, for those in segregation in the hole, and it was a hard time, and uh, and, uh, and that was after a year in the bush down there, and so for this developer to develop uh, land directly across the road from something I gave so much of my life to. Was a slap in the face to to many of them, like many, like to me in particular, but to many of the people that that you know fought for that, because this is 15 years later, and our st our people still occupy that land there. Band councils are a comprador system of political representation imposed on Indigenous communities by the Indian Act. They supplant traditional systems of decision making and create hierarchies of money and power where they never existed. With that said, there is no one-size-fits-all way to relate to these systems, and ultimately it's up to each Indigenous person to make that choice. When non-Indigenous outsiders adopt critiques of band council politics, it often plays directly into the hands of police and developers by furthering the perception of a divided community. Furthermore, it shifts the blame away from the settlers' corporate and government profiteers onto their Indigenous counterparts who may simply be trying to get something for their communities rather than nothing at all. Well, and I think a lot of folks get, um, get real blaming on the band council for uh, accepting, accepting money because they did accept uh, $352,000 in a little parcel of land next to a dump on the other side of the reserve. Um, and when these developers come to our community and say, uh, take it or leave it, the development's still going on. 
um, they can't counsel counsel people to go and 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 occupy and reclaim land because it's it's against the law and in, in terms of Canadian law it's it, it and so they uh, I understand where they're coming from by like why they took the money because they don't have you know myself and some of my friends on speed dial to be like hey I need you guys to go camp out for the next 60 days in uh, on this patch of uh, patch of clay in Caledonia you know and so it's um, it's hard it's really hard to to, to blame anybody for you know like this is what 500 years of oppression and uh, over incarceration of uh, indigenous people and uh, you know residential school of of all of it this is what that looks like and so like for uh, Canada and Ontario to, to come into our community and look for every crack possible to drive wedges to, to split our people apart has been uh, you know played perfect for them and to divide a community the way they have, um, it's it's an amazing thing to understand that regardless of what, what divisions are there, the land is ours and everybody understands that. And so to see people from the band council, uh, those band council families, from those families that are uh, deeply traditional and uh, 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 great law and uh, uh, longhouse people, uh, to see them all come together the way that they do and the way they have is, is an amazing thing. And to, to have one small part in that is, is, is a, a great gift for me. Anti-colonial efforts like 1492 Land Back Lane are now networked to similar Indigenous occupations across the country as well as a broad decentralized solidarity movement willing to effectively push back against colonial violence. This past winter, these forces came together and successfully destabilized the national economy. And it is no secret that they have the power to do so again. Non-Indigenous folks coming out to support has been uh, an amazing gift because, uh, you know, folks have been bringing out, you know, food and tents and um, helping to make as, uh, as, uh, hard a time as it is to uh, to do, and so like to make that more comfortable and to make that uh, as easy as possible, like uh, that's been an amazing gift for us. Um, a lot of folks have been uh, donating to the legal fund because like the criminalization of land offenders is a real thing for you know the courts in Canada and Ontario to be dealing with land claims through arrests and putting all of these conditions on people not to be on the land. Like those are. Those are very serious things, and so uh, to drag people from their families, from their homes, from you know arrests that are being made in front of kids and things like that. Like uh, so, the, the legal defense fund is a big thing. We got a GoFundMe for that, and uh, uh, Land Back Six Nations is another one that uh, is for the camp and the build fund. And so we're building stuff at the camp. We have a, a bunkhouse kitchen that we're building right now. And so, like all of those, those things are, are are really big. So we're calling for solidarity and uh, and action. Uh, kind of recognizing that uh, everybody in the, their respective communities has whatever autonomy to do and uh, whatever that looks like for them. 
to you know make that to, to amplify the voices of uh, indigenous people across the country because if we when we stand together as communities whether that's um, indigenous folks across the country or, or with our allies in, in in all of the big cities across the country like we're able to make make our voices heard and uh, we depend on you guys to be able to 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 amplify that voice because um, what's been seen down here is the our uh, indigenous media folks are being arrested for covering the story and so for those people that are willing to come on to the land and uh, develop relationships with people so they can get the real story behind what is happening it's um, it takes more than a you know a parachute in interview it takes that time to be able to establish a relationship and a friendship and a and so the, an understanding so that people can uh, better grasp why it is that we're doing what we're doing and so those indigenous folks that have uh, come out to to try and get that real story um, have been criminalized for it and so uh, for folks to share and um, talk about what's going on here is a huge thing and so when we have those people um, in Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver and you know Winnipeg um, doing rallies and support stuff uh, uh, blockading train tracks like there was like when the wet's wet and stuff happened like our community came out then in a big way and, and uh, blocked highway six and uh, because as long as those indigenous communities stick together regardless of where we are and as long as our allies uh, in those cities uh, non-indigenous people uh, stick together like there's 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 no limit to the accomplished accomplishments that we can that we can push forward then and I think that's the the rally cry that we're we're trying to ask for and we're calling for and that we're making is uh, as Haudenosaunee people uh, people from six nations are saying like you know we, we need your help we need we need all of those indigenous communities because we've the uh, government has um, placed us across the country as a means to divide us and keep us away from each other. And in this internet age of, uh, of uh, connectivity that we are now, that we can, that this message can get from coast to coast in the blink of an eye. And so when you continue to oppress and um, uh, quiet all of those voices that, that are saying no to pipelines, that are saying no to massive development, that are saying no to concrete and asphalt as far as you can see. Like we're saying that if you, if you agree that we need to stay together and we need to stand together in whatever way that looks like for you and your community, we're asking you all to, to stand up and say, you know, we aren't, you know, one reserve here, one reserve there. This is, this is everybody. And like, uh, for me in particular, like I, uh, I'm asking for all those folks across the country to make that stand with us. Since talking to Skyler, there have been further escalations by the Canadian state. On October 22nd, R.J. Harper, the Ontario Superior Court judge in charge of the injunction proceedings, ruled that since Skyler refused to step aside and allow development to continue during the court process, he would not be given a voice, and his legal challenges wouldn't be heard. 
The injunction was granted with no contest, and the Ontario Provincial Police attempted to move on the occupation that night. In a tremendous outpouring of solidarity and a near repeat of 2006, hundreds of Six Nations community members came out and fended off the police aggression. At the time of this recording, the barricades are still up and the police are completely unable to impose the state's will on the land. And that's where we'll leave it. Follow us on our corporate social platforms for more news on the unfolding developments at 1492 Landback Lane. Submedia is entirely funded by our viewers and listeners, and you can throw us some cash at sub.media slash donate, or pick up some of our merch at sub.media slash gear. Although this month we would ask you instead to consider directing your extra cash to the Landback Lane Defense Fund, which you can find at gofundme.com slash legal dash fund dash 1492 dash land dash back dash lane. If you're not in a position to offer financial support, absolutely no worries. Leaving a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice, as well as telling a friend or two about the new show would be incredibly helpful. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.